When wishes were horses and beggars could ride, in a stone castle by the sea there lived a rich land. How am I supposed to choose? There are so many. And so he left the trail, and he followed the sound of the music. I am the goat from the hills and the mountains. And when I have finished eating these herbs and these vegetables, then I shall eat you, too. Once upon a time, and welcome to the Story Story Podcast. I am your host, Simon Brooks, and I have some stories for you. This is a podcast to hear traditional stories told by some of the best storytellers in the world. It will take you to long ago and far away, and bring you back safely. The stories for this episode will be looking at mythic love, mean old parents, and Mr. Death. Nothing too scary, but we did want to give you all a heads up. If you're responsible for young ears, you might want to listen to these stories ahead of time to determine if they are right for your family. But before we dive into that... The other day, my daughter and I were visiting an antique store. We were, I think, the first people there that morning. The small brass bell rang a welcoming hello as we entered... We love looking for cool old stuff, and this place was filled with it. There were little rooms and nooks and crannies everywhere. Each space held new and exciting treasures. There were old frilly dresses and feathered hats hanging next to old army uniforms and helmets. There were large glass cabinets with pocket watches and rings, knives and medals, pins and brooches. There were old record players and vinyl albums, Stacks of CDs, old toys, cameras and tools. My daughter has a very good sense of smell, and I could see her sniffing this and that. She loves the smell, to a small extent, of well-oiled power tools, especially the really old ones. What really caught her eye were some box games, though. Some were not that old, but others were older than I was, which is pretty old. They seemed to sigh. Some might have become lost in house moves and ended up in this little shop. As we made our way through the shop, I noticed a small handkerchief sitting on a bench. On the handkerchief was a butterfly, not a real one, but one that was embroidered on the handkerchief with delicacy and care onto the once white material. Its colours did not bend, they were not curved, but mathematised in small, straight lines, triangles, squares, giving the illusion of curves. It was very pretty. On one side of it, a stack of old life magazines as frayed as an old pair of jeans leaned over as if asking to be read once more. On the other side of the kerchief was a huge saw blade. Why something as delicate as a handkerchief was sat next to a rusty old circular saw blade, I have no idea. I lifted one of the magazines and blew the dust off to flick through the pages and look at some of the photos of a bygone age. All it took was one sneeze. The dust rose and the butterfly lifted off the cloth and fluttered into the air. The first teller today is Stuart Stotts. Stuart hails from DeForest, Wisconsin, a little east of Milwaukee. He's not just a storyteller, but is also a musician. And on this episode, he'll be sharing his retelling of Psyche and Eros. Psyche and Eros. 
I'll tell you right now that there's a happy ending, but it takes a while to get there. You see, Psyche was as beautiful and as fanciful as a butterfly. She had two older sisters, and in fact, she was a princess. But Psyche had the beauty in the family, beauty so immense that language itself cannot do justice to it. She would walk through the streets and people would say, here, Psyche touched my baby with the hope that some of her beauty might rub off on their child. People began to murmur, to spread rumors, gossip, and opinions, saying, Psyche is more beautiful than Aphrodite herself. She is like a goddess walking on earth. They even put their forefinger and thumb together at their mouth to blow a kiss to Psyche, a sign usually reserved only for Aphrodite. They praised Psyche and forgot the goddess. Eventually, these words reached the ears of Aphrodite high on Mount Olympus, and she became enraged, enraged that a mere mortal, a a girl, should be compared to her for beauty. She was the goddess of love and beauty. No mortal could possibly find comparison with her. So she called her son, Eros, who we also know as Cupid. She said, take your arrows and shoot one at Psyche, so that she will fall in love with some rude beast, some terrible monster, and spend the rest of her life in trial and torment for daring to be so beautiful that she might be compared to me. Eros did as his mother said. He took his arrows. He flew to Psyche's bedchamber. He looked in through the window, prepared an arrow against the string of his bow, and was about to fire. When he looked into her eyes, he was startled by her beauty. He had never seen such a face. He was so startled that his arrow slipped and nicked him, and he fell victim to his own devices. Falling in love with her, he flew back to Olympus, carrying the burden of this love. Well, Aphrodite continued to be enraged that Psyche could be compared to her beauty. And her first plan having failed, she sent a famine and a fever onto the land. Not knowing what to do, the king went to consult the oracle of Apollo. What shall we do to cleanse the land? And the oracle spoke. The oracle said, Psyche will marry, but she will marry no mortal. She will meet her bridegroom on top of the mountain. He is a monster whom neither God nor man can resist. These awful words seemed to spell the end of Psyche, but it was necessary to make the sacrifice for the good of the kingdom. So Psyche was led to the top of the mountain and abandoned there against a stone. She leaned back against the stone But she felt the west wind, Zephyr, lift her into the air, carry her across the mountain peaks, and deposit her softly in a lush green valley filled with gardens and fountains and fruit trees. She saw a palace, too, its marble columns and golden roof in front of her. And as she approached the palace, voices spoke. They said, You are our mistress, and every wish of yours is our command. We will bathe you, clothe you, feed you, and amuse you. 
come into the palace now, and your husband will be here come nightfall. Psyche went into the palace. She marveled at its beauty, the paintings, the furniture, the gold leaf everywhere. She was fed, clothed, bathed, and amused all day. And at night as she lay in bed in the darkness, her husband came to her. He spoke gently, touched her softly, and she knew that this was no monster. The next day was the same, and the night as well. Her husband spoke to her and said, I will love you, but there is only one command I have. You must not attempt to see me, because I would rather that you love me as an equal than adore me as a god. Psyche agreed, and the days went by, filled with pleasure and amusement and joy. But she grew lonely. One night she said in the dark, I should like to see my sisters. Please, can they come and visit me here? This will only bring tragedy, said her husband. But she continued to beg and plead, and finally he relented. Word was sent to them. They climbed to the top of the mountain. The west wind zephyr carried them down into the valley. Psyche greeted them with great joy, showed them the palace, the gardens, the fountains. They were served by invisible servants, but they were jealous and suspicious. They said, where is your husband? We would like to meet him. He's away hunting, said Psyche. But they continued to press with their questions until finally Psyche confessed she had never seen her husband. It is just as the oracle predicted, said one of the sisters. He is a monster, and that is why he will not let you see him. Remember well those words. No, said Psyche, that is not possible. He is soft, gentle, and kind. He is a monster, said the other sister. And to prove it, tonight you must look upon him to settle the issue once and for all. I I will not. I gave my promise, said Psyche. You must, said her sisters. Tonight, take an oil lamp, keep it by your bed, and a dagger as well. And when he is asleep, light the lamp, look upon him. And if in fact he is a monster, take the dagger and plunge it into his breast. Psyche at last promised to do as her sisters wished. They were carried back to the mountain on the west wind. That night, in the darkness, when he was asleep, Psyche lit the lamp and looked upon him. And in fact... It was the god Eros, with golden ringlets, crimson cheeks, a white neck, and two wings on his shoulders. She was so startled by his beauty that her hand shook, and the lamp spilled drops of hot oil onto him. He awoke, saw her standing with the lamp in one hand and the dagger in the other, and understood the situation. He said, love cannot live with suspicion, and he flew out of the window. The palace crumbled around her, and in the morning when Psyche awoke, the lush valley was nothing but rocks and sand. She headed out, traveling through Greece, trying to find her husband to apologize, filled with regret, sorrow, Where could she find him? But he was nowhere to be found. Finally, she came to a temple. It was filled with tools and baskets and cloth, all thrown in disarray and one side to the next. She set the temple in order. It was, in fact, the temple of Demeter, the goddess of the harvest. And Demeter spoke to her and said, You have honored me by caring for my temple. I cannot intercede with Aphrodite for you. 
but you must go to her and speak and ask what can be done. Psyche found the temple of Aphrodite at last. She begged, she worshipped, she said, Come speak with me, Aphrodite. Tell me what I might do to regain my husband. And Aphrodite appeared, still filled with rage and scorn. She said, You, you are nothing but a, a girl. Your beauty is nothing compared to mine, and you would not make a good wife for my son. Well, we shall see if you would make a good wife. Aphrodite took bushel baskets filled with wheat, barley, and beans. She scattered them across the floor and mixed them together. Separate out these grains and beans. This is what a good wife would do, and do it by morning. There was nothing Psyche could do. She looked at the mess around her, but Eros stirred the king of the ants to come and help his bride. The ants came in the night, separated each grain and bean into their own proper pile, And when Aphrodite returned the next day, she said, This was no work of yours. You had help, help from him whom you have hurt. But the next task will not be so easy. Bring to me the golden wool from the rams across the river and bring it by morning. Psyche set out. She found the river and looked across. The rams were large and fierce, butting each other with their sharp horns. But a reed in the river spoke to her and said, Psyche, wait until midday when the sun is hot and the rams will rest in the shade. You can then gather the golden wool from the bushes where it will be tangled. She did as the reed said, gathered an armful of golden wool, brought it back to the temple. And when Aphrodite appeared once again, she was filled with anger. This was no work of your own, she said, but this last task, you will not prevail. Go down to the underworld, to Hades itself. Ask Persephone, the queen of the dead, for some of her beauty. For my beauty has faded as I have nursed my son, whom you burned. Take this box and bring me some beauty from Hades. Aphrodite disappeared. Psyche went out from the temple. She did not know how to find the underworld. The only way she knew to get there would be to die. So she climbed to the top of a tower, intending to throw herself off. But a voice spoke to her and said, Psyche, wait, you can find the underworld. The voice gave her directions where to find the crack in the earth, how to cross the river Styx with a boatman Charon, and sue the three-headed dog Cerberus. But the voice cautioned her, drink only water, eat only coarse bread, and sit only on the plain benches you will find there. Psyche did as the voice said. She found the crack in the earth. Charon ferried her across the river. She charmed the three-headed dog, Cerberus, and finally stood before the throne of Persephone herself. Psyche handed her the box. Please, Aphrodite begs some of your beauty. Will you give it to me that I may bring it to her? Persephone said, I shall. But while you are waiting, sit here on this fine couch. This bench will do, said Psyche. Have some wine, said Persephone. Water is enough, said Psyche. There is a banquet prepared. Eat while you wait. I will be content with this crust of bread, said Psyche. Persephone went away, and when she returned, she handed the box to Psyche. Psyche thanked her, took the box, and ascended up through the underworld. But as she approached the sunlight, she thought to herself, beauty in a box. 
my own beauty has been diminished through the trials and torments of looking for my husband and fulfilling these tasks for Aphrodite. Some small portion of this beauty could be mine to restore me for when my husband sees me again. She stepped into the sunlight, opened the box, but inside there was no beauty, only a deep sleep which enveloped her. She dropped to the ground as if dead, but Eros had had enough. He slipped out the window of the palace on Mount Olympus. He lifted Psyche up high. He awakened her. She stood before Zeus, and he pleaded his case to make Psyche a goddess in her own right. Zeus offered her the ambrosia. He said, drink of this, you will be immortal, and your nuptial with Eros will last forever. Psyche drank and became a goddess, and by virtue of being a goddess, Aphrodite accepted her as her daughter-in-law. Psyche and Eros were married and lived with great joy, and eventually they had a daughter. The offspring of Psyche and Eros, they named her Pleasure. When love and soul are tightly bound, there is deepest pleasure found, with taste and touch and song and sight to fill the hours with delight. No more to walk the world alone when we are seen and we are known. From shadows filled with mystery, our lover we at last may see, bit by bit in tiny traces, we are revealed until we have faces. The Princess, Seven Ravens and the Six Swans Weaving Company is one of the largest producers of natural fabrics in the magical realms. Custom patterns and prints, heavy weaves for tapestries, fine weaving for veils and loose summer shirts, cloth for outdoor uses, material for indoor uses. Princess Weavers also do custom work creating the look you want, whether for curtains or ball gowns. No job too small. No job too large, no cloth too delicate. Gold thread jobs are outsourced to Tom Tip Tom. Bretonette of the USA dropped us a five star review on Apple Podcasts. Thank you, Bretonette. Or is it Bretonet? I'm not sure. Perfect for family, they said. It's a great thing to find a podcast that both kids and adults can enjoy. Story Story has become the default for car rides. Papa, Story Story, please, is what I hear before I even get buckled in. Thank you, Bretonet and your children, for posting this review. Did you know that all the patrons of the podcast can have the unique ability to make a complete outfit from thin air and their patrons of the arts? You can have that too for as little as $4 a month. Maybe your unique fairy tale talent is something completely different. It would be very cool. Patrons receive an extra story each week, get a peek behind the scenes, postcards from the podcast throughout the year, and a chance to chat with Rachel Ann Harding live. Ooh. To join the story supporters, go to storystorypodcast.com for more information. And if you want to hear us make up fairy tales facts about you and thank you on an episode, then become a supporter now. Or leave a review. The butterfly opened its wings and took off from the cloth. 
It danced about the saw blade. It looked at the faces on the magazines. It said goodbye to the kerchief, thanking it for being the butterfly's home for all these years, and fluttered between the beams. I whispered to my daughter, and she looked over. I pointed. She squinted a little and looked closer at it and ran over to me. What is that? she said. I told Perry what I had seen. At first she looked at me funny, not believing, and then stared closely at the butterfly dancing through the dust motes. It doesn't look like any butterfly I've seen before, Daddy, I nodded. The colours are angular, as if they have been mathematised, aren't they? Yes. Her smile was huge. She cocked her head to one side and then to the other, watching the butterfly play in the air. Hello. Perry's voice was barely a whisper. The creature danced about her head. You're very pretty, she said. The butterfly danced closer and closer still, as if it was carefully studying my girl. And I watched, grinning like a Cheshire cat. It's okay, said Perry. I promise not to hurt you. We have to go, Pete. I thought we could see what was here in the store and then come back later when we've got more time. The butterfly got closer and closer to Perry and settled on her jacket lapel. My eyebrows furrowed as I watched, and Perry carefully pulled the lapel away to get a better look. On her jacket, now, was a delicately stitched butterfly, colours mathematised and beautiful. As we walked past the owner on the way out, he pointed at the insect that was once on the handkerchief and now was sewn onto Perry's coat. Nice butterfly, he smiled at us in a strange way. We said we would be back soon and he nodded. We always go back to magical places. And buy local, right? Our second teller is the amazing Milbury Birch. Milbury is an incredible storyteller, and you will not be disappointed as she takes you down this dark path. But don't worry, she's been told to bring you back safely. Please enjoy Milbury telling Mr. Death and the Red-Headed Woman. Mr. Death come a-riding in from the plains on his pale stallion, a-shooting off his pistols, bangity-bang-bang. Woo-ee! We was scared, all us little uns, and the grown folks, too. Only to them he seemed more familiar. But he never touched nary a soul that day, but Billy be damn Bangtree, the one the girls was all crazy for, and Mr. Death no more than just laid a finger on him, so he didn't die right off, but lay there cold and sweating, dying of a bullet in his belly, which was shot off by a drunken cowpoke in a wild euchre game. Now many a girl in our town wet the pillow with her tears when she heard how young Billy was like to die, for he was a handsome man and drove all women wild. But the one that cried and carried on the worst was pretty little Maud Applegate with the freckles and the red hair. Old Injun Mary was a nursing Billy with poultices and healing herbs and wouldn't let no other woman near his door, so there wasn't nary a thing Maud Applegate could do for him. But you can't expect a red-headed woman to just sit around and fret like you would another color girl, and Maud was no exception to that rule. Though she cried and carried on for a while, she pretty soon decided something had to be done, so she dried her eyes on her petticoat, saddled up her daddy's pinto pony, and took out across the plains after Mr. Death. Maud Applegate, she rode high and she rode low. She rode through the cow country into the sheep country, through the sheep country into the engine country, through the engine country to the far mountains, and there at last she caught up with Mr. Death, 
just about a mile down the trail from the little old shack where he lived with his granny up above the timberline. When Maud Applegate spied his pale stallion, she was mighty tired and mighty weary. Her red hair was all tumbled down her back, and her daddy's pinto wasn't no more than skin and bone. But she caught her breath and sang out loud, Oh, wait up, Mr. Death! Wait for me! Mr. Death, he pulled up his pale stallion and looked around, surprised-like, for there isn't many that call out to hold him. Why, what do you want, missy, he asked Maud Applegate as she rode up alongside. Jumpin' Jehoshaphat, if you don't look like you rode clean through the briar patch. Oh, Mr. Death, Maud panted out. I rode high and I rode low after you. I rode through cow country into sheep country, through sheep country into engine country, through engine country to the far mountains, and all to ask, would you spare Billy Bedam Bangtree, my own true love? At that, Mr. Death throwed back his head so his black sombrero slipped off and hung around his neck by the strings, and he laughed loud. Now ain't that cute, said Mr. Death. Honey, I reckon you're just about the cutest thing I'm likely to see. But Maud Applegate, she'd rode high and she'd rode low. She'd stood thirst and she'd stood hunger. She'd like to kill her daddy's pretty little pinto. Furthermore, she was a red-headed woman, and she wasn't going to be laughed at so. She took and cussed out Mr. Death good. She told him that where she come from, no gentleman laughed at no lady in her true trouble, and she'd thank him to mind his manners with her, and she'd like to know who brought him up anyhow. She'd lay his mammies a-spinning in her grave, and so on. Well, Mr. Death, he sobered down shortly and set up straight in his saddle and listened real still with only his eyes a-blinking. When Maud Applegate gave out a breath, he took out his tobacco bag, licked a paper, and rolled him a smoke. What'll you give me for Billy Bedam Bangtree, said he. But Maud Applegate, she was really wound up. She tossed her red hair like a pony's mane and made a sassy mouth. I ain't a-gonna talk business until I've washed my face and had me a bite to eat, said she. I've rode high and I've rode low. All right, all right, said Mr. Death. Ride along now and I'll take you to my cabin where my old granny'll take care of you. So Maud and Mr. Death, they rode up the slope. Mr. Death reining in his pale stallion to keep down to the poor, tired Pinto until presently they come to little old shack with smoke coming out of the stovepipe. There was Mr. Death's granny, a-standin' at the gate, as pleased as punch to see some company. Why, you're right welcome, missy, she sang out, soon as they were within calling distance. The pot's on the stove and the kettle's a-bilin'. Come right in and rest yourself a while. So they pulled up, and Mr. Death swung down off his pale stallion, come around by Maud and lifted her right down to the ground, with his two big hands a-meetin' around her little waist. Oh, ain't she the pretty little thing, his granny kept a-sayin' all the while, and hobbling around the dooryard on her crutch like a bird with a broken wing. Then she taken Maud inside and give her warm water and an ivory comb and a pretty silk wrapper from out of her old brass-bound chest. And when Mr. Death come in from seeing to the horses, there's Maud Applegate, a-settin' like a red-headed angel drinking tea. Maud, she perked up soon she got some vittles inside her, and presently she had Mr. Death and his granny laughing fit to bust with her comical tales of the folks back home. Soon, Mr. Death, he set into yawning and gaping. I've rode a far piece today, he said to his granny. I've been twice around the world and back, and I think I'll lay my head in your lap and catch forty winks. And shortly, he was a-snoring. Then Death's granny began to talk low to Maud Applegate, 
questioning her all about herself and where she come from and why she come. So Maud told her all about how Billy Badam Bangtree, her own true love, lay a dying of a bullet in his belly. So what could she do but take out after Mr. Death to beg him to stay his hand? When Death's granny had heard the whole story, she fetched a great sigh. Well, she said, it's a great pity to me you got your heart set, for you're like the girl I once was, and if I had my way, you're the girl I'd choose for my grandson to marry, for I'm old and tired and would like to see him settle before I go to my rest. You're young and you're pretty, and you don't stand for no sass, and if my old eyes don't deceive me, you can do a bit of witching too. Now ain't that true? Well, Maud answered her modestly, just a little of the plain. Like what now? said Des Granny. White or black? Little of both, said Maud. Witch my little brother into passing his arithmetic, and I also witched the preacher's wife, so she tripped on her shoestring and fell in the horse trough. Once more Des Granny fetched a sigh. That's a good start for a young'un, said she. Don't look to me like a girl like you ought to waste herself on no drunken gambling cowhand, gets herself shot up in some fool card game. Howsomever, if you got your heart set, I'll help you. Whenever death catnaps this way, he shortly begins to talk in his sleep, and when he talks, he'll answer three questions truly, and then wake up. What shall I ask him for you? Ask him, said Maud right away, what is his price to let off Billy Bedam Bangtree? That's one, said Death's granny. You got three questions. What else? At this Maud had to think, and presently she said, Ask him why he took my baby sister from her cradle. Very well, child, said Granny. And one more. Then Maud Applegate bent her red head near to the red fire and was still. But at last she said kind of low and slow, Ask him what he does when he's lonesome. To this, Death's Granny answered nothing at all, and so they sat in quiet until shortly Death began to mumble in his sleep. Then his granny took a hold of a lock of his coal-black hair and tweaked it, gentle-like. Yes, Death said, but without waking up. Yes. Tell me, son, Death's granny said, bending over his ear. What will you take to let off Billy Badam Bangtree? At this, Death twitched and turned in his sleep. Oh, granny, he said, she's such a pretty girl. If it was some, I'd make it an eye. And if it was others, I'd make it ten years of life. But for her, I'll make it that she must ride with me two times around the world and give me a kiss on the lips. At this, Maud drawed a great deep breath and leaned back in her chair. Well, son, said Granny, here's another question she asks of you. Why did you take her baby sister from the cradle? Then Death twisted and turned in his sleep again. She was sick, he said. She was full of pain. I took her so she'd need never cry no more. At this, Maud bowed her head and hid her cheek in her hand. Well, son, said Death's granny, and here's the last. What is it you do when you're lonesome? At this, Death gave a regular heave and a great groan, and he turned his face from the light of the fire. For a long time he whispered and mumbled, and finally he said real low, I peep through the windows at how the human beings sleep in each other's arms. And with this last, he woke up with a jerk, give a mighty yawn, saying, My stars, I must have dropped off. 
Now, Mr. Death and his granny was cheerful folks in spite of his profession, and that evening they gave Maud Applegate such a high old time that she was almost glad she come. Death's granny, she told some mighty edifying stories about her young days, and furthermore, she got out a jug of her blackberry wine. In Death, he played such merry tunes on his fiddle that Maud Applegate got right up out of her chair, picked up her skirts, and danced. It was late that night when Desk Granny showed Ma to the little trundle bed all made up fresh beside her own four-poster. In the morning, Desk Granny had Maud's own dress all mended and pressed for her and a fine breakfast of coffee and ham and grits to stay their stomachs for their long trip. And when Mr. Death brought round his pale stallion all saddled and bridled to go, the tears was standing in his granny's eyes as she kissed Maud Applegate goodbye. Goodbye, Maud said. I thank you for your fine hospitality, and if it wasn't for Billy Badam Bangtree, my own true love, I'd be right sorry to go. Mr. Death, he lifted Maud up to his big stallion and leaped astride. Then away they rode, right up the snowy mountaintop into the sky, and Maud Applegate was surprised to find herself warm and comfortable, riding pillion with her arms wrapped around Mr. Death's waist. Then didn't they have a ride? Mr. Death, he rode his pale stallion up the mountains of the storm to the pastures of the sky, where the little clouds was grazing beside their big fat white mammies, and the big black daddy clouds kept watch around the edge. And he rode right up in the fields where the stars grow, and let Maud Applegate pluck a few to wear in her red hair. He rode past the moon, and when Maud Applegate reached out and touched it, it was cold as snow and slippery too. They couldn't get too near the sun, Mr. Death said, lest they might get burned. But Mr. Death, he had his business to tend to, so pretty soon they set out across the wide ocean on their way to twice around the world. Mr. Death, he wrapped Maud in his cloak of invisibility, and he took her to all sorts of houses in all sorts of climes, houses where Chinese folks lived, and Russian, and Japanese, and African, and folks that never spoke a word English since the day they were born. He showed her castles and dirty little huts, the like of which she never seen in all the state of Texas. He showed her kings and princes and poor folks and all, and maybe she didn't just open her eyes. But in one respect, she noticed they was all alike. When Mr. Death come, the living couldn't see him and wept and wailed, but the folks that was dying rose up to greet him and smiled at him on their way like they knew him for a friend. She was right glad to see that everybody didn't take him for such a bad fella after all. While they rode, Mr. Death, he told Maud Applegate many a pretty tale about his far travels, and it was plain to see he was a man knew more in liquor and women and riding herd. And when they was on their last lap round and on their way home, Mr. Death, he rode out over the ocean and showed Maud Applegate where the whales played. She saw him just as plain, a plowing through the clear green water like a herd of buffalo on a grassy plain and he rode over the North Pole for her to see the polar bears, which was all white but for their noses. And he showed her the crocodiles of Egypt drifting down the Nile, and the tigers of India, too, and every strange creature with his mate. And at last, Maud Applegate couldn't help feeling sorry for Mr. Death, that he was the only one who had to be alone in all the whole wide world. But at last, they was loping back over the plain toward our town, they seen the smoke arising from the stovepipes and chimneys into the pale blue sky. They rode right down the main street past Tarbell's Emporium, past the Wells Fargo office, and reined up before the Bluebird Saloon. Why, 
What are you pulling up here for, Maud Applegate? asked Mr. Death, feeling surprised. But Mr. Death only answered, Never mind, you'll see, and swung down out of the saddle. Then he reached up and lifted Maud down from off his pale stallion, and he wrapped her once more in his cloak of invisibility, and he said to her, Now for the rest of the bargain. So Maud stood there with her eyes shut, kind of stiff, and stealing herself for his kiss, but nothing happened at all. So she opened him again, and Mr. Death said to her, No, Maud, the bargain was that you was to kiss me. So Maud, she was obliged to ask Mr. Death to lean down his head, which he did, and she was obliged to reach up and put her mouth on his. Now maybe she thought it would be cold, and maybe she thought it would be fearful to kiss Mr. Death, I don't know, I'm sure, but it surely come as a great surprise to her when she found her two arms around his neck without her knowing how they got there and her own two lips on his. And the truth of the matter is, it was Mr. Death stepped away the first and told her soft and low, We're along now, Maud. Billy Bedam Bangtree, your own true love, is setting right in there in the Bluebird Saloon. Then Mr. Death unwrapped her from his cloak of invisibility so she couldn't see him no more, only hear his spurs jingling as he walked away and Maud Applegate was left standing by herself before the Bluebird Saloon, where inside the window she could see Billy Bedam Bangtree, her own true love, sitting at a table drinking whiskey with a bunch of fly young women of a kind unmind mind sitting in saloons. Oh, then Maud Applegate's bosom was so full of a thousand feelings she thought she would bust, and she didn't know whether what she wanted most was to wrench up the hitching post, bust into the Bluebird Saloon, and lambaste her own true love, or whether she'd simply like to melt a shame and sink through the ground. Then she noticed that her daddy's pinto, all groomed and saddled, was tied up by the bluebird door. She was just about decided to mount him and gallop off home before anybody seen her, when Billy Bedam Bangtree caught a sight of her through the window and come pushing through the swinging doors, swaggering and hitching his pants like he ain't never been half dead in his life. Why, he sings out, if it ain't little Maud Applegate waiting for me outside the Bluebird Saloon. Where you been, honey? Heard you was away. Maud Applegate, she felt the red coming up in her face. She snapped back at him. Heard you was mighty sick. Mighty sick, Billy said, shaking his head. Mighty sick and like to die. But old Engine Mary, she doctored me good as new with her poultices and herbs. Now this was the last straw to Maud Applegate. She'd rode high and she'd rode low. She'd rode through cow country to sheep country, through sheep country to engine country, through engine country to the far mountains, all to stay the hand of Mr. Death from taking Billy Bedam Bangtree, her own true love. She'd rode twice around the world and back and give a kiss on the lips to a strange man and all to save a feller, which turned out to be this horse-smelling, whiskey-breathing, tobacco-chewing, loose-living, gambling, no-good cowhand standing here looking at her like she was a ripe peach and all he had to do was shake the tree. Maud Applegate was so mad she could have cried, but she didn't do no such of a thing since she was a red-headed woman and besides, something better come to her mind. Just then... She seen old Pap Tarbell lean out in the upstairs window of Tarbell's emporium, and Maud, she took and witched a spell. When Pap let fly with his tobacco juice, Maud, she witched it straight into Billy Bedam Bangtree's eye, and while he was still standing there a-cursing and a-swearing in such language as no lady cares to hear, Maud unhitched her daddy's little pinto pony and leaped astride. She dug in her heels and set the dust a-flying as she galloped down the street out of town. 
She rode through cow country into sheep country, through sheep country into engine country, through engine country to the far mountains, till she caught sight of Mr. Death on his pale stallion. Then she sung out, Oh, wait, Mr. Death! Wait up for me! And when Mr. Death heard her, he turned and rode back down the trail, though he is one who turns back for no man. And he snatched her off her little pinto pony and on to his pale stallion. He held her close, and he kissed her good, and pretty soon he said, I guess Granny'll be mighty proud to see you. And Maud Applegate said to him, Just don't let me hear no talk about peeping through folks' windows never no more. So Maud Applegate... She lived long and happy with Mr. Death, and from all I hear, she's with him yet. Fact is, she took to helping him with his work, and when we was little uns and cross at bedtime and starting to cry, our mammies tell us, Hush now, honey, close your eyes, and pretty soon Maud Applegate will sit by your bed and sing you a lullaby. And she used to, too. Heard her myself. Thank you for listening to the Story Story podcast. Show the love. Find Stuart Stotts and Milbury Birch on the internet and tell them that you heard them here on the podcast. And now you want to hear them tell more stories. You can connect with the podcast on Facebook or Instagram at Story Story Podcast. Or you can contact me via Simon M. Brooks on Instagram and Simon Brooks Storyteller, which is my website and also Facebook page. The beautiful brains behind the... The brains behind the... The person behind the fairy tale sponsor was me. The inspiration for the true fairy tale, well, it was written for Elizabeth Peterson. You can visit the visual candy for the fairy tale sponsor ads on Story Story Podcast Instagram and Facebook page. While you are there, let us know a favourite story you have heard or favourite stories of your childhood. Who knows? Maybe you will hear them here soon. Hmm... This podcast is made possible by patrons like you. Consider becoming a patron or join the mailing list to get podcast goodies or write a review on Apple Podcasts, which helps other story lovers find and enjoy the podcast. You will hear more stories next week, but until then, live happily ever after. Mary Kate opened up the door and there... On the doorstep, wrapped in his own blanket, and to this day, Anansi spins webs so that he can catch the flea, the fly, and the moth that got away. If you go down to the lake on a clear day, when the water lies as calm as a sheet of glass, you can still see the rooftops of the castle glittering in the sunlight. And if you listen really closely, you can even hear the festive music from the royal court. The Princess, Seven Ravens and Six Swans Weaving Company is one of the largest producers of natural fabrics in the magical realms. Custom patterns and prints, heavy weaves for tapestries, fine weaving for veils and luth... Luth? Luth teeth? No.